Welcome, everybody, to Culture Goes Pop, episode 13. I'm Steve Strobridge. I'm Scott Wilson. And we're joined again by Alan Murphy. Welcome back, Alan. Howdy, howdy. Thanks. And we had so much fun on our last episode talking about franchises that have been made and some sequels that shouldn't be made. We're going to carry that topic forward now. So this is another episode of The Sequel Strikes Back. And this time we're going to be talking about the Alien movie franchise and just the original run. We're not even going to get into the prequels at this point in time. This is a subject near and dear to Mr. Murphy. And so I'll just start off by setting up the movie, the year, some of the stars, and then we'll take it from there. So the original Alien movie, which was the subtitle to that was In Space, No One Can Hear You Scream. 1979, starring Sigourney Weaver as Ellen Ripley. The robot Ash was played by Ian Holm. Uh, Kane, who is the guy who started it all, Mr. Chessburster himself, was played by John Hurt. The Captain Dallas by Tom Skerritt and Samuel Brett by Harry Dean Stanton. Those were some of the main actors in the crew of the Nostromo World Box Office, 203630600 I can't even count. $203,630,630 with a Rotten Tomato overall rating of 98%. 1979, not too far away, as you mentioned in our last episode, Alan, between like 2001 Space Odyssey and Star Wars and other things. Alien, a sci-fi horror movie, R-rated. Graphic violence, all the things that we saw in the first Terminator movie, that level. Um, You want to go ahead and kick off your introduction to the first Alien movie, Alan? Sure. Um, (laughs) So Star Wars came out in 77 and was a worldwide phenomenon. Fox was on a roll. Star Wars was in the theater for more than a year. Uh, I saw that movie in the theater, I don't know how many times that I'm going to admit, uh, in public. And coming down the pipe, just shortly after comes this, uh, oh, another science fiction called Alien. Ooh, spooky. So, yeah, there I was. Um, My dad took me to see it in the theater. Uh, at a far too young an age, I was not remotely ready for an NC-17 R-rated movie <laughs> of the impact of Alien. Um, the movie scared me half to death in the theater, scared me half to death for many years afterwards. Um, did drive my fascination of understanding how Ridley Scott had managed to put so many things into a movie that worked on so many deep, scary levels. How did he do it? And uh, yeah, then the movie came out on TV and they had almost ruined it. They had taken out everything from the movie. <laughs> that was so awesome. And then Aliens was announced and we're going to have another one. And I went to see that in the theater and I was so disappointed I walked out. Wow. Okay. We're getting ahead of the uh, of the movie uh, chronology here, but you were a big fan of the first movie. Very much so, yes. 
All right, Scott Wilson, what do you want to add to that? Well, my history with Alien is when I was about, I'd say, four or so years old, my parents had always talked this movie up, and they rented it from a local video store in the Bronx, right underneath an elevated train. I can't remember the name of that store for the life of me, but it was a staple in our household in the early 80s. And he brought it home. My parents let me watch until just before the facehugger jumped on the guy's helmet. And they rushed me out of the room right before that happened. <laughs> and I remember they told me, don't come back out of the room. And I happened to open the door just as Ripley blew the xenomorph out of the airlock. And I was horrified. I just closed the door right away. Um, I didn't see the movie again for many years. But then I remember the summer of 86. Another movie called Aliens came out. And the commercials just had me curious as to what is this thing about. But that is another story that I will go into when we get to that point but um do you want me to give my general thoughts on alien or wait sure, save that okay oh. we'll do it movie by movie i think that the original alien by ridley scott who i'm not a huge fan of i think the original alien is one of those rare classics that it's like a fine wine as the decades go past it just gets better and better to now you know, originally it was it was probably conceived as a popcorn movie almost a popcorn horror film now it plays almost like an art film the just the slow the gradual pacing of it a lot of the the what they call the psychosexual themes the uh, the the subtext of it the rape subtext of the whole movie i mean there's just so much psychological level so you you just can keep digging and keep digging and never hit rock bottom it, to the design of the xenomorph itself to the Ellen Ripley be, sort of being a prototype for all tough female heroes or heroines after that. There's just to go into with this movie. I mean, it just looks great. It sounds great. The, the Exorcist is often widely considered to be the scariest film of all time, and I mostly agree with that. But I think that there's a, a, a solid case to be made for the original Alien. And also want to mention one of my favorite directors, Walter Hill, who was a producer on this film. He decided he didn't want to do it because he didn't. He famously doesn't like working with special effects. And he, the first draft of the script they read, he didn't like it aside from the chestburster scene. But he wanted to be involved in it. So just shout out to Walter Hill, who is one of the greatest action guys of all time, right up there with John Woo and Sam Peckinpah. And that's it. So do you guys remember Starlog magazine and Famous Monsters magazines? Oh, yes. Before yes. there was the internet and cable TV and all these other things, that's how we knew about stuff before it happened. So I remember subscribing to all of those things, Starlog, Famous some Monsters, Fangoria, all those things. So I remember reading about this movie before it came out, and I bought and I still have the magazine about Alien, about the making of everything before and all that kind of stuff. So before we had like box sets and director's cuts and all the commentary and how it was made, stuff you get now as bonus content on the movies, that's how we got it. Back when I was a kid, we had to read a book to learn about things, you know. So that was this. Uh, so I was into this movie before the movie even came out. I was into everything about it. And of course, 
I later became a huge fan of H.R. Geiger's work where the alien creature was was based on. And there's a great documentary on H.R. Geiger that's on one of the streaming networks I saw that I don't remember which network it was on. But you got to watch that one. And if you know Alan, just chime in. Um, it's called Dark Star. Okay. And I've got books of reprints of his stuff. And there's some stuff that H.R. Geiger has done where he even says, he goes, I don't know how I came up with this stuff. It's almost like he's being possessed and something, some other supernatural force is channeling itself through him. He, he's, he's passed now, right? HR Geiger. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But when you look at his work on the things that he has done, uh, amazing um, uh, painter and illustrator and, and everything. And so that was the foundation for the Xenomorph. So that character style, and again, getting back to the time and the era, practical effects a guy in a costume you know that the actor was like seven there's a guy this guy from africa right did the first one like a seven foot tall guy just a yep. huge human being kind of like chewbacca we just need a really tall guy to play this character because most people aren't going to be this big and of course with the giant head and the tail and everything else he looks even bigger than that um and ironically this being an r-rated horror sci-fi movie they made children's toys of the freaking alien where alien. the tongue comes out. What is the purpose of that tongue going out? Well, it's to kill another human being. So let's make a toy about this killing machine with an extendable tongue and teeth for the kids to play with so they can pretend like they're killing other things. Right? So it's and just, a movie uh, viewer. Yeah, and, and, a, and, a, and a, a tongue coming out of a giant phallic symbol, mind you. Let's not forget that. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, the whole the whole um, subtitle in space, no one can hear you scream. Um, you think the movie is about one thing. It's a mining expedition. It's these guys on this Nostromo ship, and they're off doing something else and kind of like taking a page from what Predator do later on. The story completely changes from what we think the story is. Yes. Where now they get the distress call. And... Um, there's so much imagery and so many things, again, kind of like Terminator, just things we had never seen before. So one of the first things they see is that navigator pilot guy. It looks like a big elephant in a chair with his chest burst out. And we see that and we're like, what the hell is this? We don't know who this guy is. What is his story? And they continue to explore and then they see all the crazy eggs. What is the deal with these eggs? Who are these? Who are these people leaving these eggs here? Right. We get all that. One of the eggs comes out, you know, the whole thing. We don't know what's going on. And then again, you think all is good. All is quiet, you know, and then the famous scene where they're all eating and the alien bursts out of the guy's chest. It's so graphic. And everything I read about at the time and I've heard about later is that the actors did not know what exactly was going to happen because they wanted to capture on film the genuine reactions of the shock and horror and surprise on their faces. So nobody other than John Hurt, who was rigged up for this, knew exactly what was going to happen. Um, and so that reaction on their faces was genuine because they were shocked. Um, but the scene of the guy bursting out of him and then running around and, and then again, kind of like in Terminator, we got this giant unstoppable killing machine that is just systematically plowing through everyone and everything that is as horrifying as it gets when you have something that you can't kill that is hell bent on killing you there is nothing more frightening than that um but uh an r-rated sci-fi movie it doesn't get much better than that and like you say it's kind of a it was a slow burn but you weren't like looking at your watch the whole time like oh my god what you know when's this next thing i got to do today you were invested the entire time um, just a cin cinematic masterpiece. So I'll, that's how I'll summarize that movie. 
Right, and to sort of kind of piggyback on that a bit, again, uh, that's a good comparison to Terminator because Alien was very much kind of a slasher film in a lot of ways. In fact, I think I remember Ridley Scott saying one of the one of the biggest influences on it was Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And it and it was based and many critics at the time described it as Jaws in space. It, but it's just it's it's a very artfully made film and I'm going to keep using that word artful uh, from H.R. Giger's creature design to the set design to the production design to the lighting to the, the the performances that are a bit more nuanced than people give them credit for. These guys really seem like miners or truckers or whatever it is they're supposed to be, space truckers, yeah. space miners. Blue, they're like blue-collar They're yeah. blue collar yeah. workers, right? The, they're, right. The, the, the great Yafet Koto who died not too long ago. Um, the, the way that Ripley isn't presented as the hero at first, but as the movie progresses, we begin to see her forced into more of a leadership position that she clearly does not want. We even see her break a few times. We see her cry. That's a, but, but the funny thing is the movie is able to do that. And you never see Ripley as anything less than strong, even though you've seen her burst into tears, you never see her as anything less than strong. So real alien started out, uh, real originally for Dan O'Bannon as a serious version of his previous movie, dark star, which was a kind of a dark satire comedy. And uh, in, he is in the movie. Um, he plays Sergeant Pemback. And he, there is a great scene where he fights with this alien creature in uh, fairly humorous terms. And when he got to making writing Alien and, and ultimately starting to put that into a, to a form... He wanted to make Dark Star, but serious. And he wanted it to be as, as a well-produced movie as he could get away with. But it was originally intended to just be a serious version of Dark Star and made it a very, very low budget. So he got a friend of his named Ron Cobb, who is an amazing designer, who's also recently passed. Uh, Ron put together some illustrations for him for this new script called Star Beast. They shopped it around and eventually it got rewritten, uh, as you mentioned, by Walter Hill and David Geiler. And that screenplay is an amazing read just because of the style that Walter Hill writes in. The idea of something like the chestburster scene comes through so impactfully in that script that people got on board. And with the passion of the project, with the visual style of Ridley Scott from commercial production, and then his previous movie, The Duelists, which is beautiful to watch. They just said, we're going to take this, this B-grade horror movie, sci-fi, dark star idea, and just crank all of the technicals and the passion to 11. And it shows. And I mean... What else could really be said about all that? Yeah, I'm going to repeat something that Scott said, where Sigourney Weaver became the blueprint for the strong female lead, the heroine. And again, kind of like um, in Terminator 2 with Sarah Connor, her being a badass made her very sexy, too. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Listen, I was a hormonal young teenish 
person, but seeing her in her underwear was not upsetting to me in the least. <laughs> you know what I mean? So seeing her kind of in the tank top and the underwear, sneaking into her spacesuit and stuff, that was as good as it got as far as like soft porn could be mixed in with the sci-fi thing. Yeah, right. But that, and was, that, but that, she, that scene was, uh, listen, I was a teenager. That was super sexy, seeing her half naked, you know, getting ready to kill a freaking big alien monster, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's a, and that's a credit to the, that's a credit to both the filmmaking and Sigourney Weaver's performance is that they can still show Ripley to be human and vulnerable and sexual and all these other things. But at the end of the day, you are 100%. By the time that ending comes along when she's sneaking into the spacesuit and she's, what is she singing? Once upon a wish upon a star when she's strapping in. And like, this is such tension because you want her to win. You don't, yeah. don't want her. You 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 you've been brought along with her this whole way, and she's done such a great job of fighting. You don't want to see a fighter go down, right? Right. At, at the hands of this it thing, it wasn't uh, it wasn't exploitive at all. It wasn't gratuitous no. like a Porky's type movie, where it's just a bunch of naked girls bouncing up and down. It served the story, but it also served the pubescent teen uh, horny kid and me too, to be perfectly honest. So um, no, but it was good. I mean, you you didn't look at her as you know, as an object, you looked at her as a as a person who was struggling in, in the situation. But again, it kind of set the blueprint for this heroine. This uh, a, a woman can be strong and and a survivor and a hero and and take on the bad guys and all that kind of stuff in a way that's believable, not just like tokenized. You know, right? Well, she did way better with that scene and situation than I would have. Because when that right. alien comes popping out of that compartment, that I'd have been done. That would have been oh. game over for me. <laughs> game over, man. Game oh, over. If, if I <clears throat> if I was the main character in that movie during that scene, the movie would have been over simply because the the last shot would have been me collapsing on the floor and having a heart attack, passing so out. Yeah, that's oh. that. That's that. Um. Sure. But yeah, it just kind of goes to show that you just never know what you're capable of until you're put in a situation. I don't think any of us here on the panel have been in a situation where our life has been that threatened. But I think just in general, we do find ourselves in life facing things we never thought we'd have to face and expected and what could be potentially disastrous. And somehow the human spirit, the will to survive, usually kicks in. The, you know, the kind of fight or flight um, kind of impulse kicks in and and i love the unassuming here the, the great thing about this is it was a huge ensemble piece you had a huge cast you had a huge crew on this ship everybody's getting along and chatting and making fun of each other and all these different type of things and they just start getting systematically whittled down so she didn't start off as the main character or the hero of the story but she sure as heck ended up that way at least in the first movie you know yep. um and and the, and the whole idea of of the SOB robot, you know, the, the Android thing that was more concerned about cataloging and capturing this alien for corporate greed than worrying about saving the human life on that ship. That has played out so much in all of the sequels and prequels and sidequels and stuff that have happened since then. But the whole Wayland Corporation, yeah, evil Wayland Yutani. <laughs> Yeah, the whole evil corp thing um, has really been expanded throughout the uh, the kind of legacy of this, of this movie as it's unfolded, and it's very believable. You know, it was done in a way that it wasn't like beating you over the head, 
but yeah, I mean, and, 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 you know, corporate greed is, is just as real and in, in, on planet earth as it is in outer space, you know, so crew you know, expendable, crew expendable, crew yeah. expendable. All, all other priorities rescinded. Yeah. Oh my God. Uh, I'm, I'm very anxious to hear Alan's take on the sequel because something tells me from the little preview we got, it's not quite in with the popular take on the sequel. So I'm well, anxious to hear it. Almost, almost 10 years later, we went from 79 to 86, where we get the sequel, Aliens. Again, with Sigourney Weaver introducing Lance Hendrickson as Bishop, the next generation of uh, onboard androids. Uh, Newt, one of the most lovable, believable characters in all sci-fi. Young Newt, the survivor girl. Although Alan says he's not a big fan of kids in movies, but... They mostly come out at night, mostly, right? Newt is in it. Um, we then get um, uh, Bill Paxton. Uh, when Bill Paxton, he was put on my radar on the movie Weird Science, you know, the Chet, the old brother. That is a severe behavioral disorder. And how about a nice greasy sandwich, <laughs> nice greasy pork sandwich served up in a dirty ass? There were so many classic lines from that character. And the so mighty Chet him, Donnelly. To see him kind of reprise that douche nozzle of a character in this. And then we have all these different space marines. And speaking of them, you know, Hicks, Michael Bean, or Bain from uh, our, our, uh, our uh, Kyle Reese character shows up as almost a potential love interest for uh, Ripley. Uh, did a great job there. So now we're, we're kicking it up a notch in, in Aliens. Uh, by the way, world box office, $183 million. 97% Rotten Tomatoes overall score. So the premise when we get into Aliens is that, well, okay, so Ripley was picked up, right? At the end of the first movie, she kind of jettisons in a stasis pod, just floating through space, hoping to be picked up. They pick her up, and now they decided, well, we're going to go back to the same planet that you barely you know, got away from with your lives. And by the way, we've terraformed this planet, and now there's people living on the planet, and all is well. And she's thinking, no freaking way. <laughs> and But, okay, so something went wrong. We're going to send you as the expert consultant and a bunch of space marines with guns, and we're going to solve this problem. So that's kind of where Aliens 2 picks up. You mentioned at the top of the show, not as big of a fan, Alan Murphy. So tell us, give us your reasons why you love or hate this movie. So first off, I, I just I've been a fanatic for the original movie in this series since it came out. And so there was a very unreasonable bar for James Cameron to try to reach. Um, in the theater, I remember asking myself why Ripley would even take the mission after special order 937 crew expendable what possible inducement could the same company make oh well it's 57 years later they're a different company yeah they've also cost you your family and nearly your life and they don't even believe you um the other thing i thought uh, at the time was well, the guy says there's no evidence in the lifeboat, except we saw a few minutes before in Ripley time, the alien stuffed in this locker, hiding out, dripping goo everywhere. So there was physical evidence. The pistol was still stuck underneath the hatch. You know, there wasn't anything that she had cleaned up. So errors started mounting up for me 
as a fan of the original and I'm seeing all this stuff coming up that it was like, well, that, no, 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 just no, no. And then by the time they get to the atmosphere processor and, and they're digging around in the hive itself, it, they, well, Ripley, what is this stuff? I don't know. Meanwhile, her screen test and a very famously cut scene from the first movie was her finding two of her crew members in this hive material being cocooned being cocooned. One's almost completely an egg. And the other one is saying, kill me, kill me, kill me. And that was her screen test. And the screen test was amazing. And the acting that she did in the first movie was amazing. And then there's just, I get now many years, decades later that it was probably just because Cameron was so pressed to write aliens in the midst of two other screenplay pieces of work the little things you're going to get through but at the time i'm like this movie has a very high bar to set and you're missing the points she's not going to go back without a damn good reason and you didn't give her one oh well she's having nightmares so she just decides to go the whole part about the company trying to kill you you just okay and we want to know what the hell happened to jones Uh, that's the total aside there so, yeah, I was not a fan. And then there's a kid and really not a fan. And then there's one of the Marines is cracking jokes the whole time. And I'm like, this is a comedy movie that's the sequel to one of the most fantastic horror movies I can imagine. You're killing me. Where Where's the scary? And by the time it gets to the end of the movie, there's still no scary. And I'm done. Now, many years later, I've softened on the movie. Uh, there are things in that movie that I think are some of the most stunning pieces of work ever. And it took me a long time to get over my initial reaction and recognize these things. So I, I'll temper it by saying, I think the first movie is the best. Yeah. I don't think the sequel touches it. But the sequel, had it not been an alien movie with the Giger Xenomorph, would have been an 11 on a 10 scale. But because it tried to be a sequel to Alien and there are problems it missed. So it's an amazing movie. James Cameron had six stunt suits and managed to make an entire thousand alien invasion out of it. And unfortunately, he had to cut one of, I think, his most amazing scenes. There's a, a sentry gun scene where they yeah, put yeah. these robotic guns in the hall and they put these robotic guns in this service tunnel that leads to the processor. And you have an entire battle that happens off screen, only in audio and by acting going, well, that's really bad. There's not one alien shown in the first part of the century scene that was cut. It's purely done in sound and it's an amazing piece of work. And once I got over my own fan disappointment and started you know, yeah, okay, I'm going to watch Aliens again, and then now they've come out with a third movie, I'll watch that too, and now a fourth movie, even, why not? You know, okay, it's in the rotation. I'm going to do Alien and maybe some more, and it, it just, over and over again, it took me a long time to recognize how amazing the movie was. I just wish it hadn't been an Alien movie. I wish it had been <laughs> the original story called Mother with some other creature. Put all that together, but without the Giger Alien and put it in the Wayland yutani universe and all that not make it the Ridley Scott sequel and 
there I would have had no complaints. Follow that up, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> okay. By the time this had come out in theaters, I had I still hadn't seen this the first one. I was still very much a scared child. I was nine years old when Alien was released in the summer of '86. But it was one of those movies, like *Run of the Jedi*, three years before it for me, where every kid on the playground was talking about aliens. Every every kid whose parents somehow was either tricked into taking them or. Maybe the parents had just hadn't seen the first one and just thought this was a sci-fi action movie and you could take a kid to it. I don't know why, because those trailers were pretty much clear on what you would be getting. Uh, that a few months later, after I'd done a theatrical run, my parents re- rented it on pay-per-view because I'd seen the posters and I'd seen the ads and I just had to see it. I saw Ripley holding that, that uh, the the pulse rifle with the flamethrower attached to it and as a kid that's just i have to uh mm-hmm. i spent the entire first viewing hiding behind the couch uh i was just that scared but over the next few months i slowly watched more and more and more of the movie and i fell in love with it it was very much i think this is might be the case with alan i'm not sure i'm not sure how much older he is than me I think you are you guys about the same age? Yeah, roughly. Okay, there is a disconnect I've noticed with fans of the first film. Usually the people that were of age when they saw the first film. Not usually, but in a lot of cases they have they don't know how to receive that second film. That second film I think was squarely aimed for my generation. I mean it was where the first film was as they always say a haunted house in space. The second film was clearly a blockbuster. I don't think Cameron was really aiming for scares, not not anything more than really jump scares. But it's just a roller coaster ride, and the way no, he could, yeah, yeah, the the way it expounds on like the the addition of the queen, I just thought was amazing at the time. I just as a kid, I'd yeah. never seen anything like that at all. Uh, the power loader. If you were like me and you were watching Robotech and Voltron on television at the time, the power the loader. The, Alan's saying there's no queen in the second one. Is the queen in the third one? No, there is a queen in the second one. That was Cameron's big contribution. Okay, the queen. All right. But no, yeah. there shouldn't have been. And that's another reason I get off the train for the second movie being better <laughs> than the first. Sorry, oh. Scott. No, no, no. This is no need to apologize. And no, I'm not really saying, I'm not one of those guys who's saying that the, the second was better than, I used to say that when I was younger, but they're so, they're such completely different films. I don't really think that that comparison makes any sense. It, it's so completely different and going for such different things. I think they both hit the target that they're aiming at squarely. And I think that Cameron, he also built on the template he set down with the Terminator for sci-fi action, militaristic action, you know, and and combining that with sci-fi, definitely, it, yeah, he he really kind of set a template that didn't exist. Even you know, some people might say Star Wars, but Star Wars is more epic adventure that has its that has its basis in Flash Gordon serials and Akira Kurosawa samurai films. It's not really the same thing as what Cameron is doing. Cameron is again hard charging. We got the tanker, the, the 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 pulse rifles with the grenade with the M40 
grenade launchers. You have the, mm-hmm. the, the, the power loaders. You have just uh, the Marines themselves. I mean, this new movie was so seminal for me as a kid. I can't, right. I could go on I could go on and on, but I'll just stop here because I'll just, I'm just right. well, so, so what I was saying, I, I, I understand everything that Alan's saying about what he didn't like about it from a purist continuity, setting the bar, not meeting his personal bar situation. That's kind of how I feel about like the star Wars prequels to a degree. Um, but what I will say is it did raise the stakes on a lot of other levels and it's kind of what you want in a good sequel. And when you have a movie that has some success and you're going to make another one, and I think Terminator two did this too. How do we one up? We, we lightning struck magic. We, we made magic and we never, and nobody probably expected that magic to be as magical as it was, but it was. So how do we top this? And I think he did that in the fact that it's not just one alien going after everybody. Now it is a bunch of aliens. If you thought one alien was bad, now we've got lots of aliens. So the stakes are raised there. And even though you've got more people with guns, they're still being plowed through. Um, There still are elements of suspense. Not only did he introduce things like the queen, and seeing people in a cocoon, as Alan mentioned, was a deleted scene from the original. But for most people, seeing the cocoon process was new. And that was very um, horrific. That was a very barbaric, nightmarish situation to be frozen, just knowing that you're waiting for something to gestate in you and burst out of you. Um, you can't think of a worse a worse way to go. Um, and then the other suspenseful piece was the trackers, the whole radar sonar thing to beep 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 where you knew that they were coming and that was playing into this the, the kind of the jaws thing where you don't see the shark but you know the shark is there so suspense can be achieved um thematically with not necessarily having to be visually and the, so those those trackers they had trying to track the movement of where the aliens were coming from i thought that added a lot of suspense to it and even though this movie was a little bit more comedic slash blockbustery um, I still think there were some great components of suspense in there. Just the fact there were many more aliens and there was that we don't know which way they're coming from. And, oh, well, we think they're coming. We think they're coming down the hallway that we're in. But wait, no, they're not here. They should be right here where we are. So we're, they're, they're above us. Now they're coming down. Holy crap. Now there's a jump scare. So you have a suspense followed by a jump scare. Um, I think those things paid off. Um, I, and I think, you know, what, what was the difference? We're looking at almost a 10 year difference. So we had a, a lot of time, kind of the same thing with the Terminator. We've got more time has passed. We've got more budget to spend on this. Um, it, it, it was true Hollywood sequel treatment on taking something that was amazing and arguably making it better. Now, when you look at the box office, it didn't do quite as good and only did 183 million versus 203 millions. But I think generationally, People who saw the second was well, kind of like there's a generation of people who saw the Star Wars prequels who love them. And there's us who saw the originals when they were new and hate them. So I think the generation that was raised on Aliens, the, the Alien 2, we'll call it, is probably going to love that movie because that was their first treatment of it. Um, yeah, I that's feel what it- I see. I feel it did the first movie. Um, I, I don't feel it tarnished the legacy. I feel it did honor and respect to it. Unlike when we look at what happened with Terminator, as it kept going further and further off the rails, kind of tarnishing the legacy. Uh, I feel this established, extended, and, and expanded the legacy of it 
including adding some comedic elements, which I felt were like Bill Paxton's game over, man. You know, that is is awesome. So classic and so iconic. I feel like it just helped. You needed some tension breaks. And he was that. He was the comic relief. He was the tension breaker. And, of course, you know, when he gets killed, you feel for him. Well, Um, well, even more than the comic relief, I feel that the character of Hudson was sort of the audience surrogate. Because in the beginning of the film, depending on whether or not you remember the original when you saw it back then, in the beginning of the film, you see these Marines, these badass Marines with all of this gear. And you're thinking to yourself, how could even the, the xenomorph stand a chance against that? And he's very hyped up, but he's like, yeah, we're going to go down there and we're going to kick ass and we're going to do this and that. And then after that first encounter they have, he completely falls apart. He's just completely, right. you know, he's completely shell-shocked. And the bravado is gone. And then, But then the reason to feel for him so much is in that little moment, he kind of, they gradually show him getting it back and beginning to fight to really, to really fight for his life. And then he goes, he's one of the first to go down, which is then you feel bad for him. Yeah. And his scene where he is pulled down, uh, you know, he's a chicken all the way through the movie. And with Mad Magazine actually depicted him as a chicken in their send up <laughs> with a helmet on. But at the time when it matters, at the end when he's actually facing yes. the aliens, he's the lead guy shooting more than even Vasquez. He's out front, just walking point, taking on all the aliens that are dropping out of the ceiling. So uh, that was a bit of redemption for it. And I, I, I love the character of uh, Hudson, but that's after years of like, wait, why am I laughing in an alien movie? This is supposed to be <laughs> horror, right? It, not, not comedy. So, you know, it took me a long time to come around to that, but you know, all the performances in the movie are amazing. Yeah. And, you know, over the years, I keep finding more and more to love about the movie and going through a lot of the backs behind the scenes, things and the commentaries that I have. Uh, one of the things that, you don't notice initially, but once it's pointed out, it becomes fairly obvious in the special edition is that James Cameron says he went to school on how Ridley did what Ridley did. And that he admitted that as, as amazing a director as he is, he wasn't Ridley Scott, but he wanted to honor alien and ended up having to cut the main part that he put in to honor that he had a thematic bridge with scenes in the colony and Newt and her parents finding the derelict spacecraft, her father getting a face hugger on him, and that becoming the start of the undoing of the colony. All that had to be cut for time because the original alien ran, I mean, the original aliens ran so, so long. Hmm. And that, I, that, you know, I kind of think that that may have been part of where some of my initial what the heck is going on came from was that there was not so much of a bridge back to the first movie. It was, Oh, it's 57 years later. Everything got chopped off and, uh, Oh, now we're going back. And now we're no space suits. Everyone just walks around and there's a colony and lots of aliens and uh, this queen thing, whatever the heck that is. You know, the original story was a wa- getting a wasp in your house and how horrible it is to try to deal with getting a wasp in your house. And, the second one was not getting a whole bunch of wasps in your house. It was getting a bunch of ants in your house or something <laughs> okay. like that. And it, okay. The, the, you know, the fan base, I think agrees with, with you guys that the second movie is the clear winner. Uh, every forum that I've seen 
over the years, Usenet, internet, websites, fan sites, the, the Alien sequel, Aliens, or what was originally Alien 2, uh, that seems to be the clearly the most popular one. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I think you might be right. I think it might have to do with there being a slight generation gap between fans of the original and fans that came to the series in the second movie. But even, uh, you know, James Cameron had to fight that on the set because he went to England to film it. And the crew there basically did everything they could to sabotage him until he got some of the ringleaders off the set and replaced them with some of the people that are now legends in the film industry themselves. You know, he, he, he had a very rough road on that movie. And I knew none of that at the time, but seeing the movie that we got and knowing all that kind of stuff now has made me appreciate it a lot more than I initially did. The fans, they're probably right that everyone paid their ticket and took their ride and having something as just, in your face as alien was originally is not for everybody over and over again. I know a lot of people that refused to watch the original movie just on its reputation, but they liked the second movie because it was a more approachable movie. Right. And how many times can you tell that same story? Well, and that was part of what Cameron had to face. And he talks about that in some of the commentaries is that, you know, and, and he did make the right decision uh, to not try to do another sci-fi horror or reboot Alien. But I think that this was the start of what became an even bigger problem in the fourth movie. It was the start of adding comedy to what was originally a sci-fi horror system. And when you get into Alien Resurrection, the fourth movie, there's all this comedy stuff going on in there, and that's just the way that director works. And I, it, it's, it, it falls as flat for me in the fourth movie as it did in the second movie. I didn't go to see an alien movie to, to laugh. I went to see an alien movie to be scared out of my pants. Fair enough. Right. right. Um, just my last word on it. I don't really, I like to encourage people just, it doesn't have to be a one or the other thing with these two movies, because as much as I enjoy and love that second film, and I do, it's a seminal film for me. I cannot with confidence say that it is a better, overall better film than the original because like i said the original plays almost like an art film now right it's it doesn't it doesn't really play like a popcorn movie anymore it kind of plays like something so refined and you know methodical and artistic that they just don't make it anymore so i don't i I cannot in confidence say that the second film is better i just enjoy it that's a good way to put it. I think that that's kind of where I've come to is that I originally was very much in one camp and the second camp has won me over to the point where I'll watch them both together. I don't watch one only or the other only, but I know there are some fans that, that do that. Yeah. I just, there's so many parallels between the Terminator's first two movies and aliens first two movies where arguably it could be said the second one was, I don't know if we want to say better, but more successful or much more acknowledged, or at least it captured the same magic a second time. Um, however you want to put it. Um, there's not too many movies other than legacy things like your star Wars and your marbles and things like that. But when it comes to these, what were originally one-off random sci-fi movies, cult movies, it's so rare that they've established a legacy. It's so rare that you get one good movie 
And then let alone now you get the second movie that just raises the stakes and, and delivers, you know, twice the punch and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's just so rare that that happens. And, and this is where I think lightning struck twice, where we had two great movies that really helped each other. And then we could argue about the next, the next two movies that followed, how they maintain that legacy, which is also kind of the theme, um, which is the segue into Aliens 3, which I didn't hate Aliens 3 at all. I liked it. I felt there was some good stuff in there. I felt like there seemingly was some decent closure, and that possibly is where they could have ended things. Um, the one, the one main takeaway that I really enjoyed from Aliens, uh, Alien Three, was that this was even mentioned because I told you guys I got the magazine from Starlog about Alien back in 1977 or in '76. Even then, in that book, when they were talking about the whole idea of the xenomorph, they had established that the xenomorph was going to take on however many petals, bipedal or quadrupedal, of the host that it would burst out of. So it was established in the mythology of this xenomorph. And the whole idea of morph means it can change. Then the, the name already says it's changeable. Um, that um, it was already kind of mentioned that it could it could be a four-legged, a quad, quadruped versus a bipedal type thing. And we got to see that. We got to see the four-legged alien in Aliens 3 which I want to say Aliens 3. Is it Alien 3 or Aliens 3? I don't know the pluralization of that, but the third Alien movie. Alien 3. <laughs> um, so I liked seeing that. Obviously seeing what we thought was the end and the, and the final end where she's like falling into the lava and she's holding the thing into her chest and think, okay, she's killing the final one. This is the last Alien. She's taking one for the team. She's sacrificing herself to bring an end to the bloodline of this horrible race of killing machines. Um, a great way to wrap things up in the end. Good moments. The whole the whole idea of the penal colony in space. Interesting characters. Um, I, I felt like it was a little watered down, a little drawn out, but it was a decent movie. I didn't really hate it, and that's my take on it. Who wants to go from there? Um, I guess I'll go. Uh, this one I saw opening weekend on a Sunday. I was fifteen. It was nineteen ninety two. I I went in as a big fan of a bigger fan of aliens, but also a fan of alien as I got older, that would change, but okay. Alien three is not a bad film by any stretch of the imagination. Again, like the first film, which from what I understand, David Fincher wanted to return to the atmosphere of the original. He really admired the haunted house feeling of that original film that's one of the reasons why he kills off Newt and Hicks fairly, fairly early on. At uh, uh, like and like Alan's typing in the little chat here. Yeah, he's right. It ticked off the fan base because uh, originally Fox had planned a whole sort of they had an alien car coming out and toy and everything, and David Fincher came a film that that is not if the first film was not for children. This third film will be able to process. I respect it. I don't really enjoy Alien 3 at all. I respect its vision. I respect the craft. I respect the time. It always makes sense for the type of story they're trying to tell. It's just not what I want out of an Alien film. But I do respect it. I've never seen... There's a so there's a longer cut, director cut out there that they say makes a bit of sense. I've never seen it though. 
So Alien 3, um, the story about the development hell that went through, the number of screenwriters, the number of scripts, the number of possible directors, it's all over the net. The fact that, I'll start with the theatrical version, the fact that we got a movie at all, kind of amazing. Um, Very much a downer movie, and it starts off by killing off most of the cast that everyone loved from the second movie that survived. And so it starts off with a fairly bold statement that basically ticked everybody off. (laughs) Um, I got some really horrible looks when I kind of cheered out loud in the theater uh, as all that was going on. Uh, I, I thought that the opening credits alone made a promise that this movie was going to be something to really poke at you to really try to mess with you. And I was for that. Um, it's a pretty grim movie. Uh, I couldn't name hardly any of the characters at the end of it. Um, there is what is called the assembly cut, which was put together, um, from work prints that were some of the last that were worked on by David Fincher. I prefer the assembly cut version quite a bit. Uh, David Fincher does not want it called a director's cut because he didn't cut it, but, um, but it was put together with his, basically with his blessing and with the original editor from alien three and alien as well, Terry Rawlings, uh, and the assembly cut puts back a lot of plot and it puts back a lot of characterization that should have been there and the lack thereof really hurt the theatrical run. Uh, I was very impressed with Alien 3 when I saw it in the theater, even missing that, but you could tell it was missing stuff. When the assembly cut came out, a miles better version, even though there are some changes that David Fincher had intended to make that didn't end up in that. So, okay, it's six of one, half a dozen of another. When I watch the Alien franchise, uh, the Alien 3 assembly cut is the one I will watch. If you haven't seen it, I would recommend seeing that before you make your judgment on Alien 3 at all. Because the Alien 3 that was in the theater was so chopped that the producer in one of the extras literally apologizes to the fans for the meddling. He basically says, it's on me. It's a guy named John Landau. He says, it's on me. This was, you know, uh, and basically, I'm sorry, I'm paraphrasing, but there's a whole extra interview of him apologizing for what went on with that movie. So the special edition makes. Is that something anybody can get over the counter or do you have to know a secret handshake in a back alley to get this? No. Okay. uh, When they did what they called the quadrilogy, even though that's not a word and and the later, uh, the post 2003 disc sets, uh, it will generally be called the special edition of Alien 3 or the assembly okay. cut version, but it's it's out okay. there on all the packs that have the theatrical plus some other edition. Yeah, and again, I'm sensing some parallels here to the first three movies of The Terminator. The second movie was such a high mark, a high watermark of just raising the bar, um, reaching a peak, and now we add a third movie that is so anticlimactic and so different. Now, again, I won't say that it's a bad movie. I didn't hate the movie, but I felt like when you look at 
where we were peaking wise, adrenaline wise, action wise, all those other things. We, we took a big dip in that part. Um, the, the, the science-y part of the science fiction, I did kind of enjoy. I did enjoy the fact that we got to see some quadrupedal um, aliens. I liked um, the fact that the alien would now would not mess with her because it could sense there was one in her, things like that. So there, there, was some, there were some more levels of science they added to the mythology of these xenomorphs where, yes, they are kind of mindless killing machines, but they won't kill one of their own necessarily. Well, um, or a carrier was, of one of their own, you know. This was also really the first outing of Amalgamated Dynamics as the standard bearer company doing the effects for the alien. And that comes down to, so it was, they were students of Stan Winston. They worked for Stan Winston and then split off and formed their own company uh, after Aliens and became the, the effects company to do Alien 3. And it ended up being a guy named Tom Woodruff in the suit. And Sigourney Weaver is very complimentary of the fact that the alien and the performance of the alien with Tom in the suit is a whole different thing than even in the previous outings. So the, the third movie made it more personal, brought it back to be, instead of opened wide up and we're taking on aliens across the galaxy and all the possibilities that there could have been, it brought it all right back down to a very personal Ripley versus the alien type story. But the, now the alien itself had evolved. As you mentioned, the runner, the quadruped version. Uh, we also got to see the alien vision and the alien chasing people down these corridors from the alien's POV, including it running along the walls and the ceiling and, and all these things that we hadn't seen even in the big action roller coaster movie. So there right. were some new stuff there, um, but it got lost. And it got lost because of all the stuff external to the movie and the external to the, the process of making the movie. You know, it, it's the things that made it to the screen are basically what's left. And, and that was unfortunate because it could, I think it could have been a lot more even during the theatrical run if it had, been, it had the time to have been finished. Right. The thing that goes through my mind when we talk about all these things now in the past is like, you know, if you had that time machine and you could go back now and you could like, I, it's like, I want to say to George Lucas all the time, like, dude, really? <laughs> you know. And now that you know, would you still have made the prequels the way you did? And now that we're looking at this span of work over all these movies and you looked at the six Terminator movies and you could say, knowing that what we know now, would you have, can you go back in time? Couldn't you have made the perfect third movie? Um, you almost feel like, yeah, I wish we could have done that now. And of course, now the prequels and the reboots and all these other things try to retcon things and fix things sometimes. Um, yeah, so I think all of us are saying that there were a lot of things we did like about it, but it didn't really follow the momentum of the second. Um, anything else you want to add to that, Scott? Oh, by the way, the box office w went down significantly, went from 183 million to 159 million, went from 97% Rotten Tomatoes down to 46, almost cut in half. Um, <laughs> Alan says the movie industry is an industry with all the compromise that brings uh, say, say that in your own words and, and tell me what you're talking about well um, Frank Herbert ran into this when the first attempt to put Dune on the screen that actually worked in 84 as well 
just about the time of Terminator, is that he wished that the movie Dune could have been completely different, but they were they got what they could get. And a lot of times the compromises in the movie making business is that it is a business. There are thousands of hands at work and the ultimate result is going to be some sort of aggregate of all of that, good and bad. And, you know, there's no infinite budget. There's no infinite time. There's no infinite effects. So compromises will be made at some point for, for, for bad or good. And movies that turn out really well seem to manage to avoid the parts where they had to compromise becoming an issue. Other movies, you know, had to compromise and it essentially kills them. Alien 3 had to make a lot of compromises from the process and it definitely suffered at the box office and critically for it. All right, Scott Wilson, let's wrap up the uh, your thoughts on Alien 3. You know, you know, like I said, I think it's I don't think it's a bad film by any means. I think Clearly, a lot of work was a vision behind it, a clear vision, a visionary director guiding the whole thing. Uh, it's not a bad film. It's just not my particular taste. It's not what I would, would have wanted to spend money on back when I was 15 years old. Uh, I think it's also a case of the director's vision not really suiting what the studio wants to do with the IP. Because like I said, there's a there's another podcast called now playing that about 10 years ago did a great retrospective where they talked about this, where they talked about how they were going to do a Saturday morning cartoon with Newt Ripley Hicks going from planet to planet, fighting different aliens. They had a toy line out that I remember clearly uh, in 93 and 94. Uh, and I think there's even, there may even be some stills from the cartoon series out there that you can look at or see. And, I think this is when they saw this film that David Fincher had delivered. It is this is not really a franchise movie. If you look at what he, this is a, a right. A very, this is not a franchise film. This is a this is something to actually. I'll coattail what Alan said earlier about Aliens. I think that if this had not been, if it had not had the alien name on it, might not have many, but a bit better received. Uh, not the kind of thing that you use to continue. You know, you can't, like, if you kill Ripley off, it's like you kind of don't have anywhere to go. You could theoretically still make an alien movie, but I'd do an audience to, and when I say I'm a mass audience, not necessarily a, a fan of the franchise might be able to coin if they did non Ripley alien stories, but the average moviegoer, I'm not too sure about that. So I think this was just, you know, Convergences for 20th Century Fox. Okay, you want to you want to verbalize what you just put there in chat, Alan. So, Alien Three was Sigourney Weaver having a lot more producer control over things, and uh, James Cameron talks about Sigourney Weaver wanting three things in Aliens when they made that. And one of the things she wanted is she wanted Ripley to be killed because she didn't want Ripley to be brought back over and over again like some sort of, I think the quote is, a figure of fun. And Cameron's like, no, we're not killing Ripley in my movie. You're going to have to do that somewhere else. And uh, for Alien 3, uh, as a producer, uh, she got to do that. 
And uh, I think that the version that was originally filmed, not the theatrical ending, was the better one. So the one where you're talking about the chestburster popping out of her as she's falling in the uh, molten lead, that's the theatrical ending, and that was added on. And uh, that actually got a laugh in some circles. Uh, I can't quote what was said, but (laughs) it did get a laugh in some circles about this thing popping out of her stomach. Um, The original is just her sacrificing herself, which to tie to Terminator 2, that ending had to be changed up a little bit so that it didn't seem to be too close to the ending of Terminator 2. Interesting. (laughs) Okay, but right now I'm seeing a lot of parallels here between the first three Terminator movies and the first three Alien movies. We had this breakout success that nobody expected. We had a sequel that seemed to raise the stakes and raise the awareness to a whole new generation and did equally well uh, financially and popularity-wise. And then we have a third one that kind of fell flat. Um, And in case of the Terminator, they, they kept trying to strike gold many, many more times. Luckily, in the original run of the Aliens, they only did it one more time in the fourth movie, five years later, there's about six year gap between the second and third movie and about a five year gap between the third and final movie from 1997 alien resurrection. Once again, with Sigourney Weaver and a whole new cast of ragtag ragamuffin space crew, blue collar kind of mechanic type people. Um, And as you mentioned, okay, well, Ripley's dead. Where can, where can we go? How do we have a fourth movie when she died at the end of the fourth movie? Well, they found a way to make that make sense in a way that I thought was fairly well done and much more also kind of like, uh, and by the way, Alan, just use your words audibly instead of typing them out and interrupt me or or just spit it out there. But yeah. Um, So we, we, we found a way to, I guess maybe, close the story again, maybe a better way than we did it on the third movie. I don't know. Um, once again, I didn't hate it. Um, they had some redeeming moments again, just kind of getting more of a study into how are we treating aliens? How are they looking at them as not only scientific experiments, but things to weaponize all that kind of stuff. Just seeing new takes on how people are dealing with the creatures and the creatures are dealing with people. Um, but if, without getting into the, the the deep dive on it, what's your kind of synopsis and take on it, Alan, on the fourth movie? Uh, there should have been only three or two or one. Um, <laughs> the director, his previous movies, uh, specifically The City of Lost Children, is amazing. And I can completely see why Fox would want to take a chance with a director with that strong and unique of a vision to try to, to take on Alien. But there, in the character of Ripley 8, there's some interesting things there too. You know, and okay, fine. But in the case of the Alien role-playing game, they went ahead and said, look, we can have a lot of fun in this universe and not even have the fourth movie. And so they just cut things off in the timeline right after the third movie and take your story in whatever direction you like. And so why did they want to make a fourth movie? Because, you know, despite everything, the the trilogy that existed at the time was financially successful. 
The third movie was gaining a cult audience slowly but surely, and they thought they had enough of an idea. Hey, why not take this writer that we love so much and let him loose in this universe because he does good ensemble writing? And so Joss Whedon goes forth and writes this script, and then they make a movie using that script, but with a director that has a completely different theme and tone than the writer's script. So, yeah, it's a mixed bag. I think that Alien Resurrection is probably the most beautifully shot of all of them because the the way that what little there is i mean there's like what five corridor shots in two rooms maybe what little there is is so beautifully executed and it, it is one basically the most gorgeous alien movie to look at but you know again more comedy all kinds of weird stuff going on that just doesn't seem to be horror um but probably one of my favorite characters in all the Alien movies, and that's Purvis. So, uh, you know, at the end of things, there was enough there that I'll watch it just for Purvis. Which one is everyone, Purvis? Is that, is that the... Um... Everyone does a great job in the movie, but Leland Orser plays uh, this character that has been infected by this scientist with an alien embryo. And he's told... He's got this thing in him and he's going to die at some point. And he takes that to the end of the movie in, I think, the best ending possible for a character in the Alien Universe stories. I, I just, I'll watch the whole movie and I'll enjoy it. But when it comes to Purvis's ending and that whole arc of them finding him and him being part of this crew and where that ends up, it's my favorite. I, I He's a great character, and it was so worth it just for that. And I kind of like the fact that uh, ultimately you can see that the crew of the Betty in the movie Alien Resurrection are almost sort of a prototype of the crew of Serenity and Firefly. And when Joss Whedon is in control of his characters and characterizations and things, you can see the difference between how it could have been. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, we'll we'll keep this one short and sweet. Scott Wilson, go ahead. Yeah. Um okay, here's this one is pretty much for me time to check out of the hotel. Um uh, I saw this. <laughs> check please. <laughs> yeah, I this came out on Yeah. This one came out on I think Thanksgiving weekend of 97 and I I saw it opening day. I, I think I went on Thanksgiving day to see it. Uh back then I didn't think twice about going to a movie on a holiday. That's just the kind of guy I was. Um, yeah. Uh, okay, look. This is, to me, this movie is like a laundry list of just bad, bad ideas. One scene where we have the xenomorphs who seemingly have a language, and they're talking to each other in screams and squeals. And I remember in the, in the theater, I was like, this is not... I felt like how Alan felt with the second film. You're not supposed to be laughing at a xenomorph. You're not supposed to be laughing, and, and and you can't tell if it was meant to be funny, or if it was unintentionally funny. The filmmakers didn't realize it was, which is even worse. And then we get to, okay, you know, the idea of Ripley being sort of a xenomorph 
human hybrid. I'm not too offended by that. Not crazy about it either. Uh, I always like Ron Perlman. You know, I always like to see him. I always like to see him and stuff. I just did not enjoy this movie. And one of the things I didn't like was this movie felt the most. um, I'm trying to think of the word here. It's not. It felt the most. It felt the most generic of all the Alien films. It really was. Mm. That was the thing about the franchise up until that point. Each film had a clear director behind that vision. Ridley Scott had a distinct vision for that film, and it came through in every frame. James Cameron had a distinct vision for Aliens, and it came through in every damn frame of the film, regardless of whether you liked it or not. Same thing with David David Fincher. You know, David Fincher had a vision for that light. Feel how you want to feel about Alien Three, either cut of it. The man had a vision. He he didn't cut. He didn't come to perform with no material. He came with his bags packed. And this film, to me, had no real vision. It's, and so it's, it's just a bunch of vignettes, and it turns it turns a xenomorph rampage into like it really reduces it to nothing but a slasher film. Whereas the first, sort of a slasher feel. This one kind of reduces it to nothing but that countdown until up in that space station, I think, wherever it is, that the aliens rampage feels so just typical of the time. And then no morphs and CGI just don't mix well for my taste. Uh, the to tie everything off, that weird, I don't know what, it, that weird xenomorph human hybrid thing I just remember being in the theater looking at that and her wondering son, what the her, hell was the screen child or whatever right the, the alien baby thing yeah. it's called the newborn yeah it was it was yeah. not attractive like <laughs> and it was not what was in the screenplay just terrible and like it right yeah and maybe Alan yeah, can help I, me out AJ able this <laughs> no, um, yeah, okay. it got decided to make the the did, final. Did, alien. Who was the writer on this one? Joss Whedon. Joss Whedon. Who, 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 okay. Who did Firefly, he, Buffy, the, Joss Whedon, Firefly, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the first Avengers movie. Yeah, and what he wrote okay. for the newborn was actually this spider-like creature that would like suck the blood out of its victims as it, you know so it had a, a the the mouth thing had had been iterated but the the production decided to move it more towards uh what became the newborn and this more human form that it actually speaks um which is a kind of a throwback homage to the original alien and the original ending of alien which was the xenomorph killing ripley in the shuttle sitting down in the chair and calling the traffic control in her voice. So the idea that the xenomorph speaks and moves and said, okay, that's fine. It's just that we ended up with this melted looking thing and it's crying that it doesn't want to die. And yeah. so I mentioned how much I like Purvis before. Uh, most times when I watch through alien resurrection after Purvis uh, has his ending, when it cuts back to this birth of the newborn and all that. I just stop it there. I can just skip the end of the movie. It's kind of like the end of the movie Screamers. You don't need that last five minutes. Just stop it where it is and enjoy what you got. 
but yeah, the newborn was not originally visualized like what ended up on the screen. And uh, it was not originally intended to be portrayed in the more sympathetic manner that it was ultimately decided to do. Hmm. I'm not sure if there's anything else to really add to that. Um, yeah, we don't need to then. Yeah. I, yeah. The, the, my, my most memorable um, scenes from it were um, kind of Ripley discovering that she had been a multi-generational clone experiment and how they just kept, you know, cause the, the first question you have to say to yourself is how do we have another movie with Ripley when Ripley died in the third movie? And they kind of explained that and they showed it in fairly graphic detail, how they kept trying to kind of clone her and extract her from the aliens to varying degrees of success. Kind of reminding me of a, a kind of Brundlefly. You know, and then the fly thing. Um, so at they least, had fun making those too. The, yes, that, that was you could tell that was an art department contest gone crazy. Yeah, so that scene of her seeing all the various failed attempts at her being recloned properly on those kind of on display in those big giant kind of test tube type things, and her, you know, dealing with that, kind of destroying all that stuff. That was kind of neat and explaining stuff. That was probably, to me, the most memorable part. As you mentioned CGI, I was going to mention that too. I think this was the first Alien movie to use CGI, and it had to be done to show them swimming through the water because that was, just, I guess, an easier way to do it than the... I can't imagine how you have a guy in that costume. Yeah, Tom to would sink. Every time that, that he got in the water, in the suit, the head fills up with all the water, and he basically just sinks right to the bottom. Yeah. So there are some scenes that he did practical in that, like yeah. the 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 pool where he grabs the ankle of the one victim and stuff like that. But for the most part, yeah, the, the where you see the whole alien swimming, they had to do that in CGI, and I thought they did an amazing job of it at the time too. Yeah, because you know, and it it wasn't. I don't think the technology was quite there to make it fully photorealistic, but the fact it was underwater and hazy kind of compensated for that. Um, yeah, I mean, it was it was still semi obvious that it was CGI. But it's it was it served the story well enough to it wasn't completely blatantly out of place. Um, go ahead, Scott. No, I mean, like I said, on a technical level, yeah, there's some something to be said for a lot of it. But just for me, it was just clear at that point the well has run dry, and you guys that that one to me was like the original planet of the apes sequels from the seventies. I mean, and I like some of those, but this was like beneath the planet of the apes. This was like, right. Really, right. really fellas. Like th this is what we've come to. It, uh, and yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And they thought, they thought, uh, I mean, the production company thought as much as well. Um, there, there was a talk of an alien five, <laughs> and the only way that Alien 5 had any discussion whatsoever with uh, Ridley Scott or James Cameron or Sigourney Weaver was if they would go to the Alien homeworld. Finally, go do that. That was okay. the only thing anybody wanted to do from the third movie or the fourth movie or as a fifth movie. And we still haven't, I think, got there. They went to the homeworld, uh, or they tried to, in the comic books, and those were fairly popular. And that stuff still is out there. But they keep having these ideas of, well, where did the thing come from? And, well, now we, I guess, know. Right. At, um, that discussion actually leads into Prometheus and 
uh, Alien Covenant, which we're, I'm thankful we're not going to talk about here. <laughs> right. So if we had to summarize all of the four Aliens movies, obviously the first two were uh, obviously the best two. If we had to say what would be the perfect ending to the Aliens saga, where should it have ended? Uh, I would prefer that it ended at two, but I can live with three. If it would have ended there, I could have lived with that. I'll put it that way. Yeah, I could I could go with that as well. If they had taken off and nuked the site from orbit to be sure, and it worked, then you could have ended it there. On three? On two. On two. On. Yeah. If they, sure, if they had gotten... Ended on two. Yeah, it, it peaked at two. It peaked at two, and then it became a valley afterwards. Yeah, I mean, certainly I know the fans think so. Yeah, it's just I, I only say that I would have been mad about it ending with three because, like I said, I, I don't think that that movie is just excrement. I think that there's a lot there to salvage. I I don't feel comfortable throwing that one away, even though it's not my cup of tea. Yeah, wait till you see the uh, assembly cut. I'm gonna track that down. I'm gonna track that down. Right, and I should have asked this question on the previous episode when it came to the six Terminator movies, but we'll go ahead and ask it now and we'll wrap up this whole um, segment and, and uh, episode. But when it came to the six Terminator movies, and you could pick how the whole run should have gone, uh, Scott Wilson, how should the Terminator saga have played out? What movies sh- should exist? What movies can we just scratch? Two, for God's sake, ended at two. Just ended at two. Uh, the final one, I, I kind of like that one. Still, ended at two. Just that—that that did not need to continue anymore. And maybe throw in a few episodes of the Sarah Connor Chronicles for good measure, you know. And that I'm good with the the two up front. Okay. Um, yeah. I would have ended it with three being the future war, with Cameron directing. If Cameron, so you, you would have ended it on a movie that technically wasn't made, unless yeah. you would say Salvation could possibly be that one if you had to pick one that's that does exist. Yeah, I could put that, I guess, as a third movie, but it doesn't really kind of end it. I was talking about if you're talking about trying to close Terminator. Okay, the second movie goes into the future war as the third movie. And the final, final battle that decides it all, and we end the whole time loop thing, blah, 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 happens in the future. Lots of effects, lots of models, lots of all the stuff Cameron is so good at. And, yeah, just pile on. Give me about two and a half hours of future war craziness with all the effects and things that he's been possible to do at, at, at those. Yeah, I, you, you, man, I'd sit there and pay for the watch that on a big screen all day long. Probably an IMAX. <laughs> All right. Well, this was a fun, uh, a fun experiment. Just going down, looking at, you know, sequel itis, where sometimes you can make too many of a movie that didn't need to be made. And if you're a true fan, then you know sometimes it just rubs the hardcore fans the wrong way. And I think these are two great examples of movies that have some poetry. Where um, you know the first one was a breakout success. Second one was, you know, arguably by the next generation of people better than the first. And then nothing really recaptured the magic since then completely at the level that the first two did. 
and Aliens and Terminator definitely stand out in there and I felt were kind of worth talking about. And there's nobody else I would have wanted to have been in this discussion with me than you, Alan Murphy, our special guest for two episodes in a row, because you and I have had these conversations before. <laughs> before I met Scott Wilson, you and I have had these conversations where you've just geeked out on stuff. And I know you're passionate and you are kind of a scholar on this kind of stuff. You can speak at length about your knowledge and memory of all these things. And so you've been a great addition to our show these past two episodes, and I appreciate you being here and, and hopefully you'll join us for future topics. Oh yeah, sure thing. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to whatever we can bring him on for in the future. I mean, it's been a more full discussion with him here. Well, I've I've read his writer, and I got to say, you know, his his stuff in his contract and the things he's required in the green room and all these things. He's he's a little bit of a diva uh, to get him on here. A just lot. getting his people, <laughs> just just getting his PR people lined up took <laughs> took time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But And as always, Scott, I enjoy the conversations you and I have, both on the air and off the air. Uh, Same here. I like geeking out over this stuff. And so it's been two episodes now where we've talked about nothing on TV. And that's okay, because we've probably got 10 or 11 episodes where we did nothing but talk about what's on TV. And so it's great to... One of the things I love about this show is that there really are no rules. There's no mold. There's no box. So every episode can be its own thing, and we don't have to worry about that. And so it's been kind of a nice change of pace to talk about stuff that hasn't been on TV or movies for forever, right? And that's okay, because it's all under the umbrella of sci-fi and geek culture and pop culture and all those things. So it still fits in with the vision of what I want this show to be when it grows up. Um, So thank you all. Another great episode. We're now wrapping up on episode... 13 of Culture Goes Pop. You can listen to us on Amazon and Anchor FM and Apple and Google and iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. Our website is culturegoespop.com. You can send us feedback to show at culturegoespop.com. Don't forget we're on Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, all those things. Uh, So send us a message. Tell us what you think about what we're doing here. And thank you all. And let's all say good night and goodbye, everybody. Good night and goodbye, everybody. Good night and goodbye, everybody. (laughs) Peace.